This is an ABC podcast. My guest today was born in Shorncliffe, a seaside suburb in the north of Brisbane. As a teenager, Carol met another high school student at a holiday camp. And this ended up being a relationship that completely changed her life. The young man she met and a few years later married was Buri Kidu. Buri was from Papua New Guinea and he went on to become his country's first Indigenous Chief Justice. Carol became a trailblazer too. After her husband's sudden death, Carol stood for election and for many years this girl from Shorncliffe was the only female MP in Papua New Guinea's National Parliament. Carol Kidu was made a dame in 2005. Hi, Carol. Hi, Sarah. Now, Dame Carol, what did your family think about you being made a dame? I don't know, actually. Um, <laughs> Did but, you get um, more respect from, me, from your kids? <laughs> no, but for me, I only use the title if it's to benefit other people, you know, on official things and fundraising things for other purposes, because I didn't win those awards. It was the, all the people around who helped me, who made it possible for me to become a dame of the British Empire and a knight of the Lichon d'Honneur of France and all these things. It wasn't me. It was other people who helped me. But they help get you noticed when you're writing a letter yes. to someone. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about Shorncliffe, where you grew up. What kind of place was it when you were a little girl? Well, very different from the Shorncliffe of today. Uh, it was a working-class suburb out of Brisbane and a lovely place to grow up. We, were, we went fishing, swimming, sailing... I would say it's a working-class suburb. You were born just after the war. Had your dad served? Yeah, dad was a... Well, he put his age down to go into the... to enlist, and then he served in El Alamein, and he was a rat of Tobruk, but was not there for a long time in active service because a hand, hand grenade caused him to lose his leg, and so he ended up coming back on a hospital ship to Australia, came into Perth, and, yeah, so... He never talked about the war with us, not really. Very, 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 I only remember him saying once how when he was picked up by an ambulance bearer or whatever, a German wounded soldier was picked up at the same time and they exchanged greetings. Hmm. And um, he didn't do anything to glorify war. He sees no glory in war at all. Did he stay close with, with other men he'd served with? Not really. They'd meet occasionally, but not, no, not really. He didn't join things like RSL. He, I mean, my, both my parents were very much peace people, mm. not war people. <laughs> yeah. He'd lost his leg in the war. What work did he do then when he came back to Australia? He was employed by the repatriation department. I think it's Veteran Affairs now. Uh, in clerical work, desk, desk work. Before, that, before he went away, he had been training to be a chef. But, of course, the lo long hours on his legs, it was decided that he should go into desk work. Of course, in those days, the prosthetics were not advanced like they are more recently. They were very heavy old lace-up legs. Yeah. What about your mum, Carol? What did she hope for you and, and your siblings as you were growing up? She was just absolutely determined that we would be educated. Mum had always wanted to be educated probably but she in those that era not many girls went to university level or higher levels mum did clerical work before marrying but once marrying she became i guess a typical aussie housewife in that era and her her life was bringing us up doing housework work having dinner on the tea at six o'clock the three veggies <laughs> and the meat and you know yeah and of course life of fishing fishing we I, I think i was in a, a boat dinghy fishing when i was six weeks of age or something really did both yeah, your mum and basement. dad both your mum and dad fish yeah they loved fishing and that's carried through to my brother and and i guess to me in a way but in papua new guinea in the tribal group i married into women didn't fish and it's only in more recent years that women go out fishing when i first went there women would never go fishing. They would go shell fishing and things like that. So there you are growing up in, in Queensland in the 1950s and 60s. How did you cross paths with the young PNG man in the first place? Well, uh, two of my friends and I, we were in grade 11, and two of my friends and I went to the Talabudgera fitness camp 
was our first time to, to be very brave and go away from home and the fortnight fitness camp at Talamadra. And it so happened that the boys on scholarship from Toowoomba Grammar were sent there too. They were there because it was too, they didn't send them home in August. They only sent them home at Christmas. And that's how it all happened. And do you remember the first time you saw Uri? I avoided him firstly because my friend Lorraine said, oh, I want that one, I'm interested in that one. <laughs> so when Buri came and approached me at, at meals saying, could I borrow your butter, could I borrow your jam, could I borrow, you know, kept pestering, and I'd look away and say, ask Lorraine. <laughs> it was crazy, absolutely crazy. But eventually, um, and interesting, then eventually um, he then used the Motu, the Motu tribal approach, in general, I think, Papuan appro approach, that he sent one of the other PNG boys running along to tell me to send a message, because in forming relationships in Papua New Guinea, you use a go-between. And so then young, the late Sari Maso was our go-between. <laughs> what did he say to you? Well, this is crazy. He said, the chief is willing. <laughs> and of course, I had no idea what the, the intimation of that was. <laughs> the chief is and willing. I, was yeah, because Buri was called the chief. Yeah, they all, the boys all called him the chief. He was regarded as their chief. And um, they were for different tribal groups, but they all called him the chief. And, of course, I got very indignant and said, tell him to speak to me himself, you know, this type of thing. <laughs> it's quite crazy. What happened at the, the final night concert at that camp? Where have you been reading? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the Papua New Guinea boys were always a great hit because they were great at singing and dancing and very romantic-type things in the eyes of young Aussie girls, you know. And um, it was the final night and they were doing a concert and then suddenly he broke into, Oh, Carol, I am but a fool, and this song. And uh, kind of, I guess that's, that sealed it for me, but I think for him it was a bit of a holiday romance. How had Buri ended up at Toowoomba Grammar? Well, uh, very few kids had educated, were getting education in those days, and he was at a, a, a school, local school where suddenly they opened up the scholarships for Papua New Guineans to come down to Australia for education. Kind of, it suddenly, I think, dawned on the colonial scholarship that there was a global decolonization movement and there were basically no internationally qualified Papua New Guineans, indigenous Papua New Guineans. And so there were scholarships awarded and he was in school at the time. He was probably officially too old for the scholarship, but he was quite a short person. And one of his teachers put his name in because they recognized the talent and the leadership he had. And so he got the scholarship. What did he tell you about his early life? Where had he started life? Well, he was actually born during the war when his village people were evacuated to a, an area east of Port Moresby, to a village down there, same language group. They were living in a camp down there. And that's where he was born in his early life until he was about 18 months was there. And then he came back over to Pari village, which is the village that he's from on the outskirts of Port Moresby city. Toowoomba, where he then came over to, to boarding school in Queensland, it would have been a very white town in the 1960s. What was and it a like? very cold town. And a very cold <laughs> town, that's true. What was it like for this young man from Papua New Guinea? I, I, don't, I don't know. He didn't talk about that very much at all. There were a small group of Papua New Guinean students were sent to Toowoomba Grammar. Some went to Ipswich uh, and various schools, mostly in Queensland. And um, I don't recall him experiencing racism per se. I mean, we did as a couple. What happened later? Carol, what sort of experiences did you have with Buri in public? Oh, well, one time he came down from school to, um, had to have an operation work done on his ear and had to have uh, examinations for that. And I must say, I wagged school with my mother's permission to go and meet up with him in town. And uh, it was quite interesting because we were walking along the street together and an elderly gentleman, well, he probably wasn't a gentleman, but I'll call him a gentleman, he, he looked at me and he spat on me and, and said, you filthy woman. I mean, it was quite incredible. I mean, I actually felt pity for the man. It didn't upset me because I knew who I was and I, know, I knew what type of person Buri was. Um, then we, we were in the gardens too and the police came along 
and said, get up, the pair of you. You go that way, young man, and you go that way, young lady. Because it was a time of the white Australia policy. Oh, my goodness. But it didn't worry me. I don't know why. It didn't. I just knew the type of person Burry was. What was your family's first meeting with Burry like? Well, probably just any family meeting their youngest daughter's heartthrob. I don't know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Mum and Dad completely accepted Burry. So did my brother and sister. There was never an issue. Our elderly neighbour, of course, couldn't cope with it, and she used to mumble away in her kitchen about those terrible people next door letting their lovely daughter go with a black man. And yet it, it was quite ironic because I remember one time she was working in her garden. She was widowed, and Burry saw her working there, and it just really cut him up to see an old woman working by herself. So he jumped over the fence and went and took the fork and dug the whole garden for her. Uh, and she kind of didn't know how to deal with that, but, you know, it just... I don't know... Racism went above our heads. Yeah. Whose idea was it for you to get married? Uh, not Burry's. <laughs> well, that leaves one person. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> um, uh, you know, as we were in university by then, and I kind of kept broaching the subject, he'd say, no, I don't think we should marry. Because, I mean, you know, he was realistic about life at home, and he had seen several mixed marriages where it was an expatriate man with a Papua New Guinean woman and they lived an expatriate-type life, and I guess he was concerned about that. So eventually um, I, I kept pestering him and eventually said, well, Carol, look, just remember, no matter how much I love you, never ask me to choose. And I said, what do you mean? He said, never ask me to choose between me and my people because I tell you right now I will not choose you, I'll choose my people. I've been educated to go back to my people. Uh, and I'm glad he was quite clear and pragmatic about the whole thing. What, yeah. what did you understand, though, at that age, Carol, of what <laughs> his commitment might mean for yeah. you and, and your life? Well, rose-tinted glasses, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're in love, you know, it's fine. What sort of wedding did you have? We had a, a Western wedding, but very small, at Cromwell College at uh, the University of Queensland. Um, his family were quite concerned. They had He had been betrothed to an, another girl, and they, he told them no. But they were quite concerned because in their minds, for us to be married, they had to pay a dava. Unfortunately, the term dava has been translated into the word bride price in English, and it has commodified women, which is very sad because well, what's it, a, it What's wasn't. a better translation than bride price? Uh, uh, marriage exchange. Because it's an exchange between families... You don't marry an individual at a point in time. You marry and form a relationship between your different families and the different clans, and this exchange of wealth, more coming from the man's side, less coming from the woman's side, but there's still an exchange, is binding that relationship, which then had to support the couple and their children. And did did Buri's family send then this this well, they bride gathered together a bit of money. Well, they did gather. I mean, it was they, they had basically no money, but they gathered together what they could. They were all gathered and put together. I think it was about seven hundred pounds, which was a lot of money in those days. Certainly a lot for them to gather, and they sent it to Australia. But my parents didn't get it. We explained to them. My Buri explained to them, but we used it for, like, wedding rings and a suit for Buri to get married in. <laughs> Where did the flowers for your wedding day come from? Another friend, a Papua New Guinean student there, who's still alive. I actually served in Parliament with him, Moyave. He went around and pinched them from the front yards of the of around Orkin Flower and put the, he thought we needed to have some flowers, so he went and pinched these flowers from the front yards of the of houses in Orkinflower and then took them to the little chapel at Cromwell College. He was uh, Burry's best man. How were you and Burry given a child before you married? <laughs> uh, foster- giving out children and is very common traditionally, and it still happens. It's a customary adoption. It's called Eubuaudia. And um, when one of Burry's mothers, because you have many mothers and many fathers, one of Bree's mothers was pregnant with her seventh child, I think it was. They contacted Bree and said, when the child is born, we will name the child either Carol or Bree. 
And um, Mary said to me, you know, that's that they are giving the child to us. And uh, I said, oh, okay. Yeah. Really? So, okay. Um, well, you were 22 or so at the time, Carol. Oh, God, how did no. You, how I wasn't did you 22. Feel? I wasn't even married. I was 20. How did you feel about be? acquiring a child in this well, way? Well, of course, with migration and things, a child couldn't come to Australia. And so it was given by his biological mother to Bree's mother, but fed by the biological mother, of course, but Bree's mother looked after him until we came back. And by then he was about 18 months of age. The poor fellow, he used to be told, your mother's coming, she's coming later. And then this strange white woman who didn't speak the language turns up. I mean, he turned out a nice fellow, considering. <laughs> you you had also given birth yourself to a baby girl in Brisbane before you and Bree moved to yeah. PNG. Yes. What was your arrival like in this new home for you, with your new husband and a baby, and and meeting a new baby for you there as well? What what was the arrival like? I'd made a couple of visits to Papua New Guinea by then, during. Christmas periods when Buri was completing his law degree, I had a little bit of a concept of, you know, how women are expected to do things. I knew that I was the one that was going to have to adjust. Mm. I knew that I couldn't change a culture. I couldn't change the way of life. So I had to learn how I could adjust to be part of that way of life. Mm. And it was, I think I'd been very privileged, to be honest. Mm. I'd lived Sometimes a tough life, but a very privileged life to be able to experience two cultures and have a wonderful husband, you know, the tensions and the joys of, of, of that. What was his home village like uh, when you arrived? Uh, there were houses built along walkways out over the water, and they were built out of odds and ends from the war. During the war, the, the village, which had been made of traditional materials, was taken apart, knocked down by the army because there's army barracks on the other sides of the hills at the back of the village. And so the village area was being used for landing barges and things. And the people were evacuated. So when they came back after the all clear of the war, they had to rebuild their village. And they were given the choice by the, the colonial government. Either the government would build their village for them or they could build it themselves and be given some funds to help them. And they chose the latter. They chose to and they used to go over the hills and pick up all the leftovers from the war. And so the houses were made of all sorts of odds and ends, you know. What about water and plumbing and things like that? Oh, there wasn't any water or plumbing or anything like that. Plumbing, the toilet system was a, a little enclosed room with a hole in the floor down into the sea. And in those days, the population numbers were low. And it wasn't really a hygiene issue in those days. The interesting thing was, yeah, I had a lot of adjustment to do and I did a lot of crying and I had a, a wonderful mother-in-law who covered for me and used to say, oh, Madi Tamanasina Nealaloa. Poor one, she's thinking about her parents, her mother and her father. If I'd be crying, she was never would never let people say, oh, look, she can't cope. She's not, she can't fit in, you know. So she, she helped me all the way through. But you don't marry a man. You marry a family, a clan, a village, you know, in all different circumstances, but you certainly don't marry a man. You, as you say, Carol, had so much to learn in this very different culture. What did day-to-day -day life involve? What did you have to get up to speed with in, in his village? Well, first of all, I had to find a job very quickly because there was no way Buri, a native lawyer, as he was called, his income was not going to support the extended family. And so I had to find work very quickly, and so I became a teacher. And the children were basically brought up by the village, which is the case in Papua New Guinea. Uh, I missed many of their milestones, and they say, don't you remember that, Mum? I said, no, I have no idea, no memory at all, because they were brought up by their mothers and their aunties and things. I don't think it did them any harm. Was it ever hard for you, though, who'd been raised oh, yeah. with such a different understanding of mother-child oh, relationships? Oh, yes. yeah. I tell you, in the beginning, I used to sometimes cry, and I'd get really angry, and I'd say to Breathe, she's not my daughter. She's not my daughter. She belongs to everyone else, because she naturally it attached to her mother, her grandmother and everyone very well. And I used to get really upset. Mind you, by the time I'd had three more children, 
I was very ha happy to hand them over <laughs> constantly. <laughs> and I'm sure many mothers in Australia would, who would think, hey, that sounds pretty good. What kind of yeah. attitude do, do people in, in Moto society have towards kids? How are they seen? Uh, yeah, that was another very a turning point for me in my life, uh, growing into the new culture, in that um, I remember one time I got home from school, I was tired, it was a lot of people in the house, and I went in working in the kitchen with the women, helping prepare the dinner for everyone. And I could hear little Dorby. She was about 18 months, I think, uh, or a bit older. And she was, in my regard, being extremely cheeky and naughty to her grandmother. And I just raced out of the kitchen and hit her really hard. And she fell against the wall. Uh, and the little relatives all just aghast looked at me. And then my mum-in-law said, why did you do that in Motu? Why did, why did you do that? Poor one, she doesn't have a mind yet. Madiasi Lalona. And with little children, they're excused for all sorts of behaviour and, and everything. And they're expected to be accountable at a slightly older age. Maybe by seven or eight, they're expected six, seven, eight. But as little children, no, they can do whatever they like. <laughs> just <laughs> and, a lot um, of love and a lot, a lot of family. Yeah, they're just embraced by family and love. And, and I went in, I looked at them, and they were just so horrified. And Dobby looked so terrified. She just couldn't understand what had happened to her. I, went, I just sit, went and sat in the kitchen, and I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And at that point, I realized that if I was going to survive and if things were going to work out, I was the one that had to change. Yeah. How do your, your children talk about their childhood now oh, as, as adults? Oh, they love it. Yeah, they, they they really loved it. They just had complete freedom in the village. Where they were everywhere. They were under the house spearing fish and they were doing this and they were doing that. Of course, if they were doing anything that was dangerous, in, naughty in the sense of being dangerous and things, there'd be an aunt who would call out and stop them or an uncle or a grandfather. So they were always, there were always eyes watching them. But they had complete freedom. Do your daughters yeah. remember it less fondly than your sons? I don't think so, but I would say when they became at the age where girls are expected to be very hardworking and in the kitchen, family kitchen, right when they reached um, menstruation and they became women, I think they then probably thought those times were not so good. Boys are given freedom for a long time. How did, um, how did you and Buri manage your personal relationship in this extended world? I mean, did you behave differently at home than you would have out in the village? Oh, or? yeah. And that was why it was possible, because Buri, you know, at home we, there was complete equality, and he he washed the dishes, he ironed his clothes, he helped with everything, he liked cooking. He used to say to me, I don't know why you don't like ironing, Carol, it's, it's just a mindless activity, and you can, your whole mind can be thinking about other things, because he was a great thinker. Uh, and um, it was quite happy to iron his shirts and think. But in the village, I would never embarrass him or his father or mother by wanting him to do those things. I would be in the kitchen with the ladies near the fire, cooking, making tea, serving the men, walking behind the men, walking behind people, all those things that are the protocols of behaviour. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of, our behaviour was according to the environment we were in. Body art and tattoo has this wonderfully rich history across the Pacific. Was that part of life in in the village? Yeah. In the Motu society, yes. Women were tattooed all over their body over a period of time. During the time when the men went away on the big sailing canoes to go and trade clay pots for sago, Port Moresby is in a rain shadow area, and so it, it only has one harvest a year in the traditional gardens. And it was uh, not sufficient to sustain the villages, so they also relied on uh, trading for sago from the Kerama people down the coast. And it was the tattooing was done during that time of the, of the girls, young girls starting about eight years of age until eventually the total body was tattooed and then the, finally the marriage tattoo was put on. Were you given tattoos when you entered that, that community? Well, the, the tattooing had stopped when I entered, because the missionaries had stopped it. Uh, but I wanted to, you know, learn about it and everything, so I asked mum-in-law would she do a tattoo for me, 
And so, I mean, her reaction was, you want to feel pain, do you? <laughs> you want to. But, uh, so we did a token tattoo on my wrist. And then my daughter trained to become a tattoo artist as well, using traditional methods. She traveled to festivals of art mm. with her her little hammer and stick, Iboki and Gini. And other, other tattooists were having PowerPoints and using modern equipment. She was the only one doing it by traditional methods. So we were quite proud of that. On air, online, and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Nineteen seventy five is when Papua New Guinea gained independence. Was that an exciting time, Carol? Yeah, it it was very much so, but it, but it kind of passed by me in a way. I mean, Buri was high up in the legal profession at the time, and we I attended functions around independence time, but I'd just had my um, third child. Basil was born just before independence, and I was more concerned with, um, you know, having a new baby and and breastfeeding and things like that. In 1980, then, your husband was appointed the country's first Indigenous Chief Justice. What did yeah. he most want to do in that role? He wanted to ensure the independence of the judiciary, and he fought very hard for that. And he, he did, in many ways, achieve it, although there's, sometimes there's intimations that there's influence used now, but... His main issue was that he wanted independent financing of the judiciary so that he would never have to beg to a political master for money. And he achieved that. And many chief justices in the Pacific region said said to me, what your husband achieved is an absolutely incredible. And so with the passage of budget in Papua New Guinea, the total budget is passed, and then there is a separate appropriation bill done for the judiciary, which then is completely independent, and it cannot be interfered with by the Minister for Justice, and he achieved that. And I think it was, a, I, I realise it was a, really a very great achievement. Mm. And how did you see your role once he became Chief Justice? What was Lady Kidu meant to do? Well, I, I was still teaching because supporting a large extended family requires two incomes. Uh, but, yeah, I attended official functions, etc. As the Chief Justice... It, you know, when the royalty came, the position of Lord Chief Justice in the UK is a very high position, higher than in Papua New Guinea. And so we were invited to all those types of events. Tell me about dining on the Britannia, Carol. <laughs> I what thought was you that were like? <laughs> well, it, it was, I mean, what a privilege. What an absolute privilege. And I must say, I, my, I didn't come from a royalist background at all, but I did admire Queen Elizabeth enormously and the late Prince Philip because they really did their job thoroughly. And uh, we'd been at a cocktail function one evening, masses and masses of people, and Buri had been talking with Prince Philip. And next, the next evening on the Britannia, this small dinner, he was seated near Her Majesty, and she then reactivated, oh, my husband tells me this, this, and this that you'd said to him last night. And they obviously, they remember everything, and go and brief each other before future meetings, yeah. I was very impressed, that, and he was very impressed by that. What did Bury think of the meal, Carol? <laughs> well, it was very cordon bleu. <laughs> it was very minute in size, <laughs> little portions, and very healthy. Um, but when we got back to the village, I mean, we went from dining on the Britannia back to the village to pick up the kids, uh, and all he wanted was to put on the rice, a Carol, go and cook some rice, will you? And he had rice and bully beef, you know. <laughs> because he's, <laughs> it hadn't satisfied his... Buri was, was Chief Justice until 1993, but then mm -hmm. wasn't reappointed. That's right. How much of a shock was that for him? 
he anticipated it. He had annoyed the politicians of the day too much. And, of course, Chief Justice is a cabinet appointment. Um, and he had said to me, Carol, I will not be appointed again. And I used to say to him, oh, nonsense. They wouldn't, they wouldn't get rid of you. Um, you're so respected in the Pacific things. But he said, no, I won't be. And I convinced him to reapply. He was reluctant to do it because he thought he knew what the outcome would be. So he did reapply. I actually said to him, look, you've only got two years until retiring age. Just reapply and tell them that you want to retire in two years' time. He said, I will never negotiate for my position. How dare you suggest that? So he put in his application for a reappointment, but another member of the judiciary was appointed instead, and he was, by the prerogative of cabinet, you know, finished. He'd finished his term. Uh, but the, the judiciary was his baby. I used to say to him, you've got two loves, and I don't know which one you love the most, me or the judiciary. And uh, it really was very traumatic time. It brought up huge public comment in the media, etc. Soon after that, in 1994, Bury had a massive heart attack. Were you with him, Carol? Yeah, it happened in, in, in bed in the morning early hours of the morning. He'd been really well the day before. He did have a heart condition, but, but it was considered non-life-threatening, and it was, he used to um, take angina tablets for it. Uh, and the day before, he'd been feeling really well, and then he just suddenly died of a massive heart attack. Did you get him to the hospital? or uh, We happened? did, but it was too late. Um, we got him there, and they were trying to revive him, but it was, it, he really was a dead-on-arrival uh, person. And, of course, uh, when people there, when the hospital attendants saw us arriving with this man in a lap-lap and, and all dishevelled, they made no effort to hurry because they saw it as a dead-on-arrival. But um, then suddenly the whisper went round, who is this man? And they said, he's our big man, Purikiru. And so then everything went into action. But, you know... I mean, Professor Kevov, and she said, Carol, you know the, what will happen. If we get, get him around, he will be a vegetable for the rest of his life. And I said, stop, because the relatives would not let the doctors stop trying to revive him. Yeah. It must have been such a shock for you and your, your children, that sudden, the sudden yeah. nature of that. Yeah, it was, it was very, very shocking. But I, I kind of felt a kind of peace came over me once we took his body to the village and laid it out in the village room, and I sat at his head, as is the case, it kind of, a, a peace came over me. It was really quite strange, because I just felt enormous pity for his family. I knew that I could get on with, I could manage in life, but, you know, I knew that they relied on him so much, financially, for advice, for leadership, and I felt enormous pity for them. Was was he given a state funeral as well as that private yeah, village uh, burial? Yeah, yes. Um, uh, Sir Michael, the late Sir Michael, actually came and begged me. I'd said no because Bury had always said he he wouldn't want a state funeral. Uh, Sir Michael, you know, came and begged me. He said, Carol, you must let it happen. You know, and so he did have a state funeral. Yeah, it was very massive for mm. those days. What was that like for you to have him celebrated or remembered in that kind of way? Well, I'll be honest, I was glad in the end that I'd said yes. I got angry because we were waiting to go to the church and time had come for the start of the service and I said, what's happening, what's happening? I was there with the hearse and they said, oh, sorry, some of the dignitaries aren't there yet. And I just exploded because Bury was never late for anything in his life. He was fanatical about time. And um, and you're making him late for his funeral. So, I, yeah. Um, but I was glad I did allow it to happen because the speeches that were made were very, very powerful, some of them. Yeah. Had you and he ever talked about your going into politics, Carol? Not directly, except that after he was not reappointed to the judiciary... Lots of people were coming. People were coming and singing and dancing and telling him, please, we want you to stand. We want you to stand for politics. We want you to become a Papuan prime minister. Uh, and um, he never answered them. He used to say, give me six months to sort out my life because he died without a pension. 
the pension, you know, he, he was not retiring age. And um, he said, give me six months to sort out my life and come back then. And I said to him once, you know, you're not going to escape. They're really going to force you into it. And he turned on me and said, well, why did you bloody well do it? I don't think I want to do it. Um, and he did die almost six months to the day from the time of his non-reappointment. He had got his whole life in order again, as, as was his nature. He died on a Sunday. The next morning, Monday, it had all been lined up. Kiru Lawyers, a new firm, was going to be announced. It was quite strange the whole way the whole way it all worked out, yeah. So w- was that admonition to you ringing in your ears that, that helped make you decide to run for politics? Or what prompted you yeah, to, I, to do that? Oh, well, yeah, it was. I was angry. I was an angry woman, angry about what had happened to Bury, angry about certain things that were happening in the country. I made the decision very quickly, but I didn't say a word to the relatives because that would have made them suspicious that I might have caused his death. Oh, really? Uh, through through sorcery or, or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah, because they, they believe very strongly that Buri was killed by sorcery. You know, heart attacks and sudden deaths are never accepted as natural events. Nowadays, yes, they are starting to be, but certainly not in the time Buri died. The question is, what caused the heart attack? Who caused the heart attack? They accept there was a heart attack, but who caused it? What caused it is the question. And So how did you navigate your way through that? Well, I, I just kept quiet about it for a while, but people were themselves approaching me, and the late Sir Cecil Abel, who's in his 90s, he died soon after Barry's death. He actually said to me, it cannot finish here, you realise, Carol. You will have to do something. And so there was kind of subtle pressures coming from people. But I left it until several years, but I started quite, quietly kind of making moves. I was known in the Motu Society, but I was not known in the settlements where people have come from other tribal groups into town. And I knew I had to get to be known there. And so I was starting to work on that. I also went to work for Samoyave, who was a minister at the time, and I was a, became a research officer to kind of look at the scene. But when you look at the scene, you don't, you don't really know the reality of politics. And then eventually I went to our elder, and I said, this is what I want to do in Motu. And I was saying, I need your help. He supported me all the way. He was the biological father of my adopted son. Uh, and then so he arranged then the meetings of the brothers, Buri's brothers, and at that meeting, it was very clear the wives did not support it. Um, but the brothers, because I knew the culture, I knew how I could get a yes from them rather than a no, their permission. Why did the wives not support it? Women themselves often don't support women in politics. It's seen as a male role. And I think a widow, especially a widow, you know, I should be just looking after the grandchildren. And so the brothers, I had to go be able to stand with the permission of the Kidu family name. I felt that was very important. After that, I went to Buri's grave and we asked permission. An elder asked Buri's permission and asked Buri to support me in doing this. Because the dead are always with you. The dead don't leave you. Was that an Um, important moment for you too, Carol? That standing by Buri's grave and asking for permission? Yeah, extremely important. And so the assumption is, not necessarily by me, but by the family, that the right things, the right protocols had been observed. And then after that, after asking, seeking Buri's permission and asking his support, the elders did it on my behalf, of course. We then had to call a clan meeting in the village, which was really hard because many of the clan members supported the incumbent. So I was asking an enormous amount of them, and some did change and come and support me. Yeah. Was the fact that you were a white woman an advantage or a disadvantage? I know the diplomatic circles and those people just thought I was mad, you know, because they didn't know my personal life. I know a lot of them thought it was crazy that it was suicide, that I I would have no chance of winning. But I knew I had a very good chance because I had the sympathy vote of being Saburi's widow. I knew the Motu villages, and I spent a lot of time after getting permission from the family then working on getting to know the people who lived in the Scottish settlements and the other areas of the electorate. 
every candidate believes they will win, I think. And I, but, and I believed I would win, but I worked very hard and I had some wonderful people came and offered their support. People I didn't even know, never had anything to do with, but one gentleman who'd been around the electorate and assessing support for me, and he came and asked, could he, could he be part of the team? And he was a brilliant numbers man uh, and uh, stuck with me for 15 years. None of them were paid high jobs. Positions for political staff are not highly paid. Yeah, so I was very lucky. All that work paid off and you were elected. What memories stand out for you in, in being in Parliament with more than 100 men and often, often as the only female MP? Yeah, for, for my first term, there were two of us, Dame Josephine Abijah and myself. And she, she actually, we were always on the opposite sides of the floor because she was with the party from the other side. But then after the second and third terms in Parliament, I was by myself, and then I retired by choice. You're a white person and you're a woman, and so you, you are doubly unusual, I guess, in that Parliament. What kind of pushback did you get from the, from the male MPs? I, initially, I was treated with kid gloves and given enormous respect. Again, a reflection of the fact that I was the widow of Saburi Kiru. Uh, and I, I, I knew that, I could sense that. And eventually someone, I, I was in the opposition, and eventually someone from government side, I know, who, I know who it was, he's still in parliament, yelled an abusive something or other across at me. And I, I thought, yeah, that's it, good. You know, I felt good. They're now seeing me as me, not as Buri's widow. What kind of issues were most important to you? What did you want to focus on? Well, the areas that often don't excite the men, and so there'd be no attention to them for all the time since independence. The issues of um, women's health, maternal mortality, children, disability, uh, contentious issues which I left till my last term but didn't succeed, like things like the Unnatural Offences Act and trying to get some justice for people of different sexual diversities. I didn't succeed in that attempt. But um, then on top of that, I was very interested in the issue of urbanisation because I could see the squatter settlements and the mi migration to the city was destroying, in many ways, the economic future of Buri's village people. Their land was being occupied often being kind of sold in inverted commas to these migrants from uh, resource-rich areas. The issue of unmanaged urbanisation was also a very big interest for me. Mm. I then did major amendments for the legislation on rape, child sexual abuse, new legislation. Did it, did it sometimes seem overwhelming? I mean, this work was so important, but you, this sole female voice on some of these issues, how did you keep, keep going? I don't know. I just kept working. <laughs> there were lots of people around. I mean, people helping me. And, yeah, I, I would... Uh, my daughter tells me... One of my daughters eventually came and worked, gave up a good job to come and work in my office... Because Sir Michael said to me, Carol, get one of your children in the office. You get be, you'll be betrayed by people otherwise. And so I got permission from the Ombudsman Commission to em employ one of my own uh, qualified children. She tells me, she told me a few weeks ago, she said, Mum, you used to just lose it sometimes. It'd be, it would be so overwhelming. And I'd have to drag you into your office and say, sit down and shut up. <laughs> I can't remember it. She said you would, I would just lose it because the pressures are enormous. Mm. People expect you to deliver to them individually if they've given you a vote. It's very hard to be a politician in Papua New Guinea. Um, it's very hard to be a politician anywhere probably, but people expect direct return for their vote. And nowadays people tend to sell their votes and that makes it very much that the people with ma money win elections. How many women are there in, in PNG's parliament today? None. None. That's why I'm going back to... I'm going to be working with mentoring and working with some of the women who have been scoring well in the past, see if we can somehow get across the line. There have been attempts at temporary special measures, and I did a big push in my last term in parliament to try to get what we call temporary reserve seats. It didn't succeed. 
the government today is working on temporary special measures again, whether it will get passed before the 2022 election, I don't know. But we have no women in parliament at present. You really carved out your own way of being a Motu woman once you moved to, to Buri's village. When you managed to get back to PNG, what, what role will you have? Uh, it's The village has changed enormously. I think everyone says that. I actually do not go very often to the main village now. It actually depresses me so much. In fact, I, when I went down for a funeral last year, I, I felt physically ill going down, driving around, and seeing all the houses that have been built on what used to be gardening land by more aggressive tribal groups and people selling off their land to get a little bit of money to survive. And I find it very, very depressing to go now because it is a difficult future for the indigenous people of the city of Port Moresby. And so my my oldest son, the adopted son, Buri, he does all the required traditional obligatory things on our behalf. And that's appropriate because I'm a widow now. I'm supposed to stay at home. <laughs> and staying at home is very pleasant because we're, we're building a, a kind of retreat at the beach, a tarama on traditional land. We built it... We st- we basically moved into it about three years before Buri died, which is sad because mm. he loved it. He just used to love being there on his traditional land, looking after pigs and going swimming. And, yeah, he had three years there. Mm. Uh, and so it's a very pleasant environment. Of course, there's a lot of people come and need help. But it's not begging. Traditionally, no one e- ever expected anything for free. But nowadays, people kind of tend to... It's an abuse of custom. Mm. We all have obligations to each other, but sometimes now I actually get quite harsh and I say, eh, I say it in language, why, sh- why should I give you this 100 keen or 200 keen? What have you done for me? Mm. Uh, and I say, you know, olden days, people didn't beg. Like Auntie Tutui, she would come with a bag of yams or some fish, and then I'd get home from school and she'd be there, and I'd think, oh, okay. There's going to be a request, but there was never actually a direct request. We'd make a cup of tea and we'd sit down and we'd talk about everything except the real issue. And then eventually I'd say, Lalagu, Auntie, why did you come? Did you come for something? And then she would say, oh, yes, I need some money for a bride price or I need some sugar money or something. But if I didn't actually open that door for her, she would just gather her things and go away feeling ashamed and say, Buri's wife didn't want me, Buri's widow didn't want, you know. It was not begging or demanding the way it was done traditionally. You always did something in return for something. And this is how customs are now being abused. When you are away from, from home, away from Papua New Guinea, as you've been here in Australia these last few months, what do you miss most? Probably the the freedom, the relaxed atmosphere, the ability to light a fire if I need to, to, to dry, burn off some leaves, <laughs> <laughs> and all sorts of strange things. I find Australia to be extremely overregulated, but I guess that's the way society works here. Um, yeah. What, uh, what about the, the countryside itself, that landscape? Is that, that extraordinary physical geography of, of Papua New Guinea something that you have inside your heart now? It's a beautiful country. Incredibly beautiful country, and nowadays I, um, I'm very privileged that sometimes I go as guest lecturer on expeditions into remote areas, places I could not get to and could not afford to get to, and that's an enormous privilege, and you really do see the beauty of the country and the genuineness of the people. And whenever, whenever I, I do that, my aim is to send away a whole boatload, usually about 50 people, I, I, my aim is to send away a whole boatload of ambassadors for Papua New Guinea, and I think, I think I do succeed. Mm. They see the reality from a safe environment. Yeah. Do you ever, ever wonder, Carol? I mean, I think talking to you, a woman who's focused on 
what's next and focused on the future. <laughs> but if you ever let yourself, as you're lighting a fire and having a cup of tea, look back, uh, back to your earlier life, I mean, what might have happened to you if you hadn't gone to that school camp and met that handsome young Papua New Guinean man? I wonder what life would have been for you. It would have been life in Australia and suburbia and I would have known any different, probably. Did you ever wish that's what had, that's what had happened? No, no. Sometimes now, I'll be very honest, sometimes now I do question, you know, where, who am I? And I've written poems like, who am I? Mm. You know, in this kind of interface between two worlds and, and both worlds rapidly changing. <laughs> I, so I just think, I'm going home to build a jetty, to work on building a jetty with the village carpenters, and I, I think that'll keep me busy. <laughs> Carol, it's been really fascinating to, to meet you. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you. I spoke with Dame Carol Kiddu in July last year. Carol tells us that she did build that jetty and apparently it's a very popular place for visitors to sit, so she's hoping to build another next year. In the lead-up to this year's elections in Papua New Guinea, Carol worked on a Women in Politics project with the Australian National University supporting women candidates. And two of the women that Carol campaigned with did win seats. But given the violence and chaos of this year's election, Carol says a lot of work has to be done before the next one in 2027. As she says, Papua New Guinea definitely needs more than two women in Parliament. Thanks to ABC Radio's Sisters Let's Talk for first suggesting Dame Carol as a guest. And you can check out Sisters Let's Talk, a podcast about women across the Pacific at the ABC Listen app. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.